0: Kevin, welcome to the Tread Podcast, episode two. Um, for those of you who don't know Kevin, he runs the Javelin Anatomy Instagram page. So he's, uh, he's had a, had a, coll- a collegiate uh, javelin career himself. Um, I believe he's still training uh, for his own javelin career as well. So he's, he's training post-collegiately. Uh, and then he he puts out some really good stuff. So uh, Kevin, first off, I want to thank you for being on and excited for this discussion today.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's be a lot of fun.
0: Awesome. man. so I guess uh, first question for you, just, just to familiarize uh, the viewers with who you are, could you give us like the five minute background, three to five minute background on how did you get into Javelin? Um, kind of take us through that journey um, through, you know, how you got recruited to, to go to Yukon uh, for Javelin, how that process kind of evolved, um, what some of the ups and downs were in that journey, and then, you know, how that brought you to where you are today.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I started throwing javelin in high school. Um, I I used to play baseball growing up and ended up finding javelin because, you know, I was a guy who had a cannon for an arm at baseball, but sucked at everything besides throwing guys out from center field. So uh, long story short, uh, you know, I threw through high school. I had a mark that was, you know, just barely good enough to get me into a Division One program. So I ended up going to UConn to throw. Um, I joke around that I was probably the most unathletic athlete to ever be uh, admitted <laughs> into a Division One track and field program. Yeah. And, you know, my journey through college was, you know, it, it was pretty crazy. I had three surgeries through my time at UConn, uh, but I ended up finishing my career with a personal best of 72 meters, which was, uh, you know, for the guys who don't really know Javelin very well, that's a high level Division One throw. Uh, but it's not, it's kind of like right on the brink of where you would train post collegiately to throw, to try to throw professionally. Gotcha. Um, so, so that was kind of like, like my collegiate career. For
0: for reference, like um, for Olympic qualifiers, like what, what kind of throw, throw do you need? Like 80 meters, somewhere in that
1: range? Yeah. So 85 meters is the qualifying mark, uh, okay. but they take, it's like the top uh, 48 throwers in the world. So usually it's less than 85, but 85 is like the mark.
0: Gotcha, so like what what would the equivalent be of like like throwing a hundred miles an hour in, in pitching would be the equivalent of something like that like eighty eighty five where there's a there's yeah, maybe probably, guys in the world that can throw you know a hundred maybe a couple hundred guys
1: yeah, so there's there's a lot of guys who can throw eighty five plus so i I would probably say maybe more like ninety five would be the equivalent like that's good enough to get you to the pro level, um but then the best guys in the world are throwing you know ninety plus, and the best guy in the world now is throwing. Uh, like 95 meters.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And, and then, so you're you're still actually pursuing uh, your own career as well then, right? You're you're what, four or five years out of college now?
1: Yeah. So after college, uh, you know, I, I was kind of on the fence about whether or not I wanted to continue throwing. Uh, like I said, I had three surgeries throughout my collegiate career. So I had Tommy John surgery, and then two uh, hip surgeries where I had to have my labrums repaired. Uh, I had FAI. So by the end of college, I was kind of like burnt out. My body felt horrible. Uh, and I basically made the decision that I was going to, you know, hang up my spikes and, and call it a throwing career and kind of just dive into the coaching side of things. I had the Javelin anatomy page up and running. So I figured that seemed like a good way to continue to stay in the sport coaching, um, you know, while giving my body a break, um, What I'm sure you can relate to this is when I got into coaching, uh, I was finding a lot of really cool information, um, like new ways to train that I'd never Mm -hmm. seen before. And, you know, when you're a coach, you obviously, you know, you got to try it on yourself first to make sure sure it works. So, you know, from basically August until, uh, you know, the spring track season the following year, I was doing a lot of uh, new New training, so I was getting into like the Athletic Truth Group stuff. Um, mm. You guys probably know uh, knees over toes guy now, yep. and, and Jeff That's Jeff Wolf, the flexible. Um, and then I got into like functional range conditioning. I started learning a lot from Adarian Barr. Uh, I got into like Edo Portal stuff, and and then some Dan John stuff. So I was doing a lot of experimental stuff on myself, and basically. You know, over that six-month span where I was experimenting all these new training methods, I I felt healthy. Finally, probably for the first time since middle school, I finally felt healthy and functional and like I could go out and throw without pain. Uh, so naturally, I, I decided to dip my toes back into throwing. And uh, basically, with barely any training uh, on the technical side of things, I went out and I was throwing you know, 10 meters further than where I left off in college. So I, that was enough for me to, you know, decide that I was kind of onto something and uh get back into the competitive side of growing.
0: Yeah. Uh, I've very much had the same kind of experience where like, you, you don't really know a ton when you're at the collegiate level, like you just haven't been exposed to that much. And then you, uh you start to learn more and more like after the fact, and you're like, wow, if I'd only, if I had known like these couple things when I was, 18, 19 20 years old like I would have, it would have been a totally different uh, athlete in college and it's hard to like it's hard at least for me to be like okay'm I'm, I'm done with this because you see what's what's actually possible on the other side once you start exposing yourself to these these new training methods like I've I never threw over 95 when I was in college but like I've thrown 97 to 98 three four years removed from college like I'm hitting numbers on different throwing drills that I had even now that I haven't hit before. Um, so I can totally relate to that fact. It's like, once you start going down that rabbit hole, like keep speaking on the, on the value, I guess, of self-experimentation because that's, um, some coaches just kind of from, once they're done, they're done and they remove themselves from the, the self experimentation piece of it. And it's just like, whatever their philosophy is, they kind of stick with it. But you you seem to take this, this idea of self-experimentation very seriously. And it seems to be like a core, uh, principle in how you learn and then apply that to the guys you coach.
1: Yeah, no. So I I actually love that point you just made with like the collegiate system. I was very big into self-experimentation even when I was in college, but you're very limited by the NCAA training system itself. So you have your team lifts, you have, you know, a very structured schedule that you're on and yeah, you can sneak away and do your own workouts, but then, you know, you have to manage your workload and fatigue and try not to run yourself into the ground. And I actually think that, my self-experimentation in college in conjunction with everything that I was doing with both the team lifts and team workouts and all the throwing. I think that I might've ran myself into the ground. I think that that was something that like I was doing too much, but I was learning a ton. And it wasn't until I was out of that system where I could just do the things that I wanted to do where okay i now i'm making progress now i'm staying healthy and that's where a lot of things come together there's like a whole extra layer of freedom that comes when you are in charge of your schedule and when you're in charge of you know every element of what you're doing it's like yeah. you know I, I always preach like personal responsibility from the athlete's end but it's like there's a a certain level uh extra of that that you can take on when you're out of school um but yeah, I mean, I I think that every athlete, like, you have to make your training system your own. You have to make your workouts your own. So, like, I, like, taking on personal responsibility and exploring new ways of training, like, to me, that's the only way you're going to make it to the top. Because, like, unless you are are one of the athletes who legitimately has, you know, uh, a coach who's has the knowledge and and tools, you know. To give to you to help you throw a hundred miles an hour, 70, 80 meters, then it's like you're just rolling the dice if you follow your coach's training plan to a T. It's like there's this right. kind of like a self-limiting factor yeah. there. That's something I am bring Coachable. Up.
0: I bring that up as well with with a lot of my guys. Is like if you if you actually look at a, a like a pitcher's career, for example, like they're going to have two to three different coaches in high school. They're going to have a different coach on their summer team, different coach for their their spring team. They get to college, they're going to have a different uh pitching they're probably gonna have three different pitching coaches over their college career if they happen to get to pro baseball they're gonna have three different pitching coaches per year like as if they're moving up and down between each level so you're gonna have 12 15 different coaches like if you can't ultimately think for yourself and figure out how to pick and choose what applies to you then like you're basically at the mercy of of whatever coach you happen to be paired with at the time right so it's it's the guys who there's so many guys that come to us where they, they, were the, they were the stud, like high draft pick and they'd never had to think about any, a single thing. And they just like, it was easy for them. The second they run into any sort of adversity or they have a coach who like kind of screws them up a little bit. They, they're kind of lost. Like they have no idea how to fix themselves because they never had to like learn to really think. And they were just at the mercy of whatever coach they happen to have. And what, if they screwed them up, they screwed them up. And that's to me, that's just like, it takes a lot of uh it adds a lot of like chance to the equation versus being able to take ownership of your own career.
1: Yeah, and I think that same concept applies even like even just on like a one year time frame where you're going to have your strength coach, you're going to have your athletic trainer, you're going to have your technique coach, maybe you'll have your head coach, maybe you know, you're going to be doing all these different things. You're going to have different plans from, you know, three or four different people and it's like what's the common thread there? The only common thread because they're not like yeah they're talking to each other, but it's like you're the only one who actually knows what's going on between all of them and how it's making you feel. So if you're not in tune with that and you don't have the tools at your disposal to be able to advocate for yourself, then it's like yeah, like you're you're rolling the dice and there's a very good chance you either get run into the ground or you you know just get you know stuck being mediocre for
0: however long you're with all these people do, do you find that the top javelin throwers tend to be pretty analytical and, and intelligent I, I ask that because in, in pitching it's it's kind of a mixed bag like you have your super analytical like i would consider myself like that you seem to be like that um, trevor bauer would be an example where he's very very analytical and, and knows exactly why every single thing he does is is there but then in the, on the flip side you have some guys where um, they kind of just like don't think and that's part of their strength in terms of being able to go out there and perform and not have like anxiety um, and and not overthink what's going on, not be, not have all these internal cues like weighing them down um, is javelin kind of that way where it's a mixed bag and some guys are just, just naturally have it. Don't have to think about anything or do the guys who rise at the top seem to be the ones that are very methodical, very analytical.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a mixed bag. Uh, if you look at like the best javelin throwers in the world right now, they're, they, they're all very, very intelligent uh, with the sport and, like Thomas Rawler specifically is, like he he's probably one of the most progressive minds in javelin right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, but then it's a mixed bag because you have a lot of guys who, you know, there's kind of like the the old school javelin training methods. And maybe you, you think that you're learning about how to throw javelin, but you're learning the same set of information that, it, you know, it, maybe it's not like the best information out there. It's like kind of like limiting information, like you have like old school cues, like throw over the top and stay closed. And it's one thing to learn those cues, but it's another how to apply them to yourself in an intelligent way. So I think a lot of people, they, they're they under the impression that they're like learning a lot, but they're falling short and actually applying it and making it their own and you know, be kind of like they're critical, but they're not necessarily creative with how they mm. apply everything.
0: Gotcha. I guess al- along those lines, how, how important do you think genetics are in terms of, um, certainly from a javelin standpoint, but also just in general, from like a pitching standpoint, from um, being able to get everything you can out of your body, how important do you feel genetics are? Like, um, I mean, obviously, you know, you aren't maybe the same type of genetics as, as these top javelin guys, um, but you still found a way to get to a fairly competitive level. Do you feel like that's a, that's like a hard limit uh, for you or for, for other athletes? Or do you feel like it's something where um, you can really train to improve a lot of these qualities?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think my favorite example is uh, there was a javelin meet a few years ago where uh, there's a 6'5", 240-pound thrower from Germany who was throwing at the same meet as a, a 5'10", kind of stocky thrower from Taiwan. And they both threw 91 meters. And so you look at these two guys You say, okay, you know, one of them's big, lanky, strong. And the other one is, you know, on the smaller side, quick, stocky. How do they both throw 91 meters? To me, that's the perfect example that, you know, genetics is not, you know, a a big factor. All of the elements that go into high performance in throwing are trainable and limb length and height and weight it's like yeah they can they can influence how you need to train but you know everybody's going to have their own individual pathway to reaching you know their highest level
0: for sure so i guess take taking a step further from that like knowing what you know now like if you could go back in time like let's say you go back in time you're now a freshman in college you're trying to figure out how to lay out a four-year plan to throw let's say 80 meters like what would you what would you do differently to get the most out of your genetics if you could go back in time like how would how were you training then versus how you would recommend uh, someone in college train now and on the flip side on along with that like do you see a lot of these same mistakes still being made at the collegiate level both in javelin and also just what you've observed in in the baseball realm what are those common mistakes and how would you change them
1: yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest mistake that I've made in my own career is I, I ignored the importance of athleticism in throwing. Um, I I was chasing weight room numbers for a long time. I was putting a lot of emphasis on, you know, how strong I could get in certain lifts. And, you know, I was barely doing any running. I, I wasn't doing any, like, mobility or flexibility training. And I, I was throwing... Almost always with the intent of throwing super far, I put barely any focus into you know understanding positions and feeling positions and basically just overall body awareness and body control. so I think that that is like the number one element of training that throwers should put way more emphasis on is you have to be an athlete before you're a thrower, and you know that's gonna mean you know you need to develop uh you know. A, a better capacity for running and movement and body awareness and mobility and flexibility um, so, I think that go ahead yeah, so I mean I think that that's like the the big thing is like you have to be an athlete before you're a thrower, but then on the flip side of that too, it's like before you're an athlete, you have to be a a quote unquote human, and what that means to me is everybody has the same. Uh, Joints throughout their body. Everybody has knees. Everybody has feet. Everybody has hips. Everybody has a spine, shoulders, elbows. So you need to maximize the 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 ability to move each one of those joints. And that's where I talk a lot about mobility and movement capacity. Is you can't use what you don't have. And throughout my collegiate career, we we basically never did, you know, any training that was focused on very specific individual joint capacity relative to throwing technique. And so I was going out trying to hit positions in my throw that I was literally not capable of hitting in general. Um, so if you're ignoring those elements of of training, then you can't bring that into your throws.
0: I, lo- I love that you brought, so you touched on a lot of stuff and I love that you brought that up because there's so many parallels to what we see in, in the pitching realm, um, you, you mentioned where all, all your intents, all your focus and intent, uh, pretty much the entire time was every session was throwing as far as you can right there. So that's the first thing uh, we see a lot of that in the, in the pitching realm is everyone's just like to throw harder. you have to throw as hard as you can? So all they do all the time is just try to throw hard, but they just run into a wall where technique, mobility, these other qualities become their limiting factor. And they just keep bashing the head into a wall. same thing with the strength training, um, and I'm I'm curious because we kind of come came up with what we feel are uh, we call them strength thresholds. It's like once you get strong, once you get strong enough, once you get as strong as like your kind of average big league pitcher, which they're strong, but they're not like crazy freaky strong. Even the guys who throw a hundred, they're not crazy crazy freaks. Most of them. Um, then it's time to focus on on other factors. Um, so I'm curious to touch on that. Like, where do you feel? Do, first off, do you feel like strength training is still valuable? And if so, where is the cutoff point where you kind of put that in maintenance and start focusing on some of the other qualities or do you feel like they should all be kind of trained uh, simultaneously where you can work on strength to a point while still respecting the, the kind of tenets of athleticism as well?
1: Yeah. So this is actually something that I've changed my mind on fairly recently uh, where maybe a, a year or two ago, probably a couple of years ago, I would have said that, you know, strength really doesn't matter. It's all about your ability to hit certain positions. Um, But I started working with Grant Fowler a lot more closely uh, two years ago. And the way he approaches strength training, uh, he kind of takes more of like a no stone unturned approach to strength training where you're not focused on any specific lift. You're just focused on overall adaptation of the body, um, you know, to, to handle stress and taking that approach, you can get, strong and stronger and there's not really a limit to you know how strong you can get until it starts uh actually negatively impacting your movement so that's kind of what i say is like don't chase weight room numbers but don't necessarily put a limit on how strong you get if it's not negatively impacting you know your movement and uh mobility so i think that strength training is super important uh you know, especially in terms of like resiliency and and health and recovery, um, it's just a matter of are you still moving as well as you need to, um, and that's where like your mobility work and just the the overall uh, organization of your training plan as a whole, like proportionally, are you doing enough athletic work and mobility work to, um, you know, maintain your your movement and athleticism.
0: So when you when you talk about mobility and, and I completely agree that um, if you don't have the the mobility or the degrees of freedom to to get into a position, you're, you're not going to be able to actually display that in the sk- in the skill. You're not going to be able to display that in your in your javelin throw or on the mound if you don't have the actual capacity to hit those positions. Um, are you addressing that when you talk about mobility in uh, kind of the corrective exercise sense, or you know I know you've done a lot of um, kind of extreme range of motion uh, lifting type movements? Are, are, you, are you focused primarily on opening up the range and corrective si- the corrective side or on loading in, into extreme ranges and like incorporating that into the lifting itself, like super deep lunges, super deep uh, push-up holds, things like that? Or do you kind of address it from the other side where it's static stretching, it's FRC type movements?
1: Yeah, so the way I approach it is, is all of it. Um, in terms of the weight room, uh, you know, we're still doing like the big compound lifts but then the quote unquote accessory work is going to be more of the strength through length style of training where you're doing, you know, the super deep lunges, the super deep push Um, and, it, and there's just like a focus on addressing specific, uh, specific levels of, you know, loading through these, um, you know, quote unquote extreme ranges of motion. So even doing things like barbell dislocates, and doing skin to cats, um, basically just ma- making each joint as resilient as possible in the positions that you uh, need to hit in your throws. Um, and then on top of that, the overall movement capacity side of things, we're, we're mostly addressing that at it in separate mobility work throughout the training
0: week. So it seems like a, a theme here is that you're, you view the the strength training side as like building building tolerance and resilience in the sports specific positions, like the deep the deep positions that you're trying to get into in, in your actual sport. So it's not necessarily about raising your squat from three three fifteen to four four or five. It's about targeting a specific position that is a specific like weak or delicate position and be, being as resilient as possible. So like give me give me one or two examples of that. You said the deep lunge pull over something like a pullover.
1: Yeah. So um I mean, just to really quick, like I think the the big problem with like the, quote unquote strength training in general is when we focus too much on the exercises rather than uh strengthening specific joint movements. So just uh to answer your question more specifically, like instead of doing bench press to quote unquote strengthen the chest, we're gonna do chest flies, skin the cats, we're gonna do uh Cuban shoulder rotations like external rotations and internal rotations under load in different positions. We're going to do isometric holds at the weakest positions. Um, And just basically if a joint can move in a specific way, we're going to train that and strengthen that and make it as resilient as possible through, you know, its full range of motion.
0: So what's, I guess, what's the progression then from that? So like, let's say you, you do open up some range of motion and then you, you build that resilience and that stress tolerance in that new range of motion in the weight room. Um, what's the progression to then be able to really uh, produce power and be able to fire through through some of those positions, right? Just opening up the range and having control of it and and stress tolerance does, to me doesn't seem like the entire picture. How do you integrate that and and start being able to really uh, maximally uh, apply force and, and power through those positions?
1: Yeah. So that that's probably the most important point of all of this is that the point of all this isn't to be good in the weight room. The point is to be a good thrower. So once you open up the range of motion and, and not just the range of motion, you want to open up the range of motion of every joint in the throwing kinetic chain. So you need right hip rotation, spinal segmentation. You need to free up your scapula. You need to develop some semblance of shoulder external rotation. Uh, and then from there, you're strengthening it in the weight room. But simultaneously alongside that, you're gonna be doing your throwing workouts and um i i I'm a big fan of weighted ball throws for javelin. It's a really easy way to get in um like sub maximal throwing repetition uh at high volume so that that is like my big focus for throwers who uh maybe lack some of the uh either you know the technical side or the 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 power side like you're saying is we need to teach them how to take that range of motion and then bring it into their throwing technique. So, um, so and then you I find, have a very specific that... set of cues and drills that I'll use to, to help them do that.
0: So to, to piggyback on that, you, so then you find that um, using high volume submax throwing is particularly beneficial. Um, is that more from the technique side, more from the um, building capacity side, or is that more from like a, a power and, and a distance kind of development side? Like, cause that, that's something yeah. you said you didn't, you didn't do in college. Like everything was like max effort all the time. So what kind of, where do you see the sub max days or the high volume kind of low effort days slot in?
1: Yeah. So this is another really important point is that there's no separating technique and quote unquote movement capacity. And, uh, that was, that was kind of, you know, like you said, like my big mistake in college was. I thought that technique was just okay. Let's take the ball and throw it as hard as I can and, you know, that's my technical training for the day. But I was doing that with a horrible lack of mobility, so it's like the movement that I was ingraining during those throwing sessions was bad movement. And I don't really like that term bad movement, but it's like I I wasn't prepared for the demands that I was placing on my body in that. And if I had taken the time to develop just say hip internal rotation and spinal segmentation. Doing a workout centered around that, around mobility, would have been more specific to high level throwing than the terrible throwing technique that I was doing in those workouts. Does that make sense? Mm
0: -hmm. It's like by
1: focusing on the on the individual elements that go into, you know, my quote unquote optimal technical model, I would have made more progress technically than you know, ingraining these uh, bad movement patterns.
0: Right, because your body is basically, it's, it's having to work around the constraints of the system. And so if you have a super locked up spine, super locked up hips, right, that basically the stress has to go somewhere. If, if all you do is just layer this this high intensity and this load on top of a dysfunctional system and joints that aren't moving properly, like it's gonna it's gonna find its way to work through the kinetic chain somehow. But to your yeah, point- it, like, things Are going to break down like you had your elbow, uh, you had both hips, uh, start to break down. So, speak to that for a second,
1: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think this is like a really important point is that, like, when we talk about throwing technique, we we need to, right? We, we have our our cues and our our you know sequencing terminology. We say, oh, like, you need hip shoulder separation in order to throw at a high level, but then it's like Hip-shoulder separation, what does that really mean? Because our hips are really two femurs sitting on opposite sides of a pelvis that can move independent from the other side. And then we have, you know, 12 thoracic spine vertebrae and two individual scapula and two sides of the shoulder. So every one of these joints is going to have a specific role in driving the throwing motion. So when we boil that down to hip-shoulder separation, we're we're losing all of that you know information as to what's happening in the throw. So for me it was like maybe my my hip shoulder separation was good but I didn't have any movement in in my my femurs couldn't rotate my spine couldn't segment itself and so all of the stress that, that would have dispersed all the force that I could have created and all the stretch reflex that I could have had throughout my entire body and torso um I was just cranking into my shoulder and you know the the energy is going to go to the most mobile route and for me that was my shoulder and my ucl and ended up paying the price for that so for me it's like when we talk about technique uh we we have to define the exact joint motions that go into that technique and I mean, define the exact positions that we want those joints to be in and then make sure we can get into them. Um, So going back to, like, the weighted balls, like, it's not really about power development. It's not really about technique. It's not really about movement capacity. Really what it's about is just preparing the body for the exact thing that we want it to do. And it's like everybody likes to say, like, you have to throw hard, you have to you have to throw hard in order to throw hard. But it's like but first you have to develop the body awareness to get into those positions and uh and just like understand it on a cognitive level what you're trying to do.
0: So you, you view you view those submax days then as as simply just extra preparation for the tissues, for the joints, um, even more so than technique, although that's part of it. It's it's just preparing the body for those positions so that it actually will be able to withstand the, the quote-unquote high-intensity days.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and it trains the body to work in synergy to throw the way that you want to throw. And, and it connects the body in that way. There's a certain feel to these drills um, that you're able to ingrain by you know throwing at a lower intensity. You're able to feel what your body is doing a little bit better. There's a quote that I love where you know you say slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So that's kind of to me what the submaximal days are about. It's slowing things down in order to speed things up later. And that is on a neurological level in terms of motor learning and that's on a, an actual uh, physical adaptation level in terms of developing the elastic tissue and the range of motion to hit the positions in the throw.
0: Do, do you find that there's such a thing as, as going too slow though? Like do you find that if if the thing that to be able to have that smooth connected feeling, that sequenced feeling, where the arm just seamlessly kind of uh, kind of snaps through uh, with with low effort, um, One of the things I've noticed is that if you go too like there's there seems to be a, a minimum threshold where you can actually capture the energy from from the lower half from the ground through the hips. If I go like 20% effort, I almost feel like I have to consciously slow everything down, consciously soften my lead leg, consciously decelerate early. Um, and for, like, I almost can't throw a ball under like 75 or 80 miles an hour. If I like, use my body properly and actually like sequence the energy and just let my arm be pulled through. But if I try to throw 50 miles an hour, I find myself consciously like decelerating everything early and almost, it feels like I'm ruining my sequencing. Do, like, do you guys find that there is, is a minimum, a minimum intensity Call it like thirty meters. Like, is there is there a point where it's not it's not productive, or do you do a lot of stuff at at these very low intensities and, and try to find a way to be sequenced there?
1: Yeah. So when I say submaximal, like the intensity that I kind of mean is probably in that seventy-five to eighty percent effort range. Um, but a lot of the drills that I like to have athletes do, like I like to do, uh, I call them figure eight throws, where you kind of swing the arm around the body in a mm-hmm. figure eight pattern. Um. Like a drill like that is kind of, it it, it's self-limiting in how low intensity you can go. Like you have to go at a certain intensity in right. order to actually swing the arm up and through. So, like you're you, you physically can't go
0: yeah. at a low so intensity. It, the focus then is, so. the, the focus is on feeling. Like would this be an accurate representation? You're trying to feel like this this smooth flow and wave of energy work its way through the entire body, up through the arm. And it's like whatever whatever intensity allows you to feel that, where it's like not the arm itself completely taking over the throw, but it's it's the flow of the movement becomes the the goal in those days.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And and I think that there is value in in exploring the intensities from like you know, as slow as possible to as fast as possible. Um, whatever those intensities are, maybe it's like 60 percent effort all the way up to 100% effort. but it teaches patience in timing because when you do a drill like that, where you just totally relax the arm and feel the energy flowing through the body, you have to wait for the energy to get to your arm before you release. So the slower you go, the more patient you have to be. But then the faster you go, you know, the less patient you have to be. So there's value in just tuning into that flow of energy at various intensities. And, you know, like you were saying with with how it's hard to uh, go at a super low intensity and still hold form. One thing I like to do for that is I'll actually use 2K balls, two kilogram weighted balls, where you can slow it down to an even higher degree and still hit some of the positions that Mm -hmm. you would at higher speeds. So it's like the weight of the ball kind of compensates for the lower speed. Yeah. In terms of feeling the pull through your body, let me,
0: let me ask you about that then, because that's that's something I've noticed as well. So like, usually in in some of our warm up drills with like the the soft plyo balls, the soft weighted balls, um, the fir- as as they build intensity for the day, like maybe their first set is is just upper half drills, and maybe it's using like the the one pound ball at 30%, 40 percent effort, because I've noticed like it's easier to throw those heavier balls at lighter efforts and still sequence it in to the throw. But if you try to throw like a three ounce ball at 30% effort, like it loses all meaning you, you, you just don't get that actual feedback of where your arm is in space. But we've also noticed like, if you if we have guys use balls that are too heavy, the the tendency is that their arm just kind of shoots in and pushes the ball, like they, they lose the ability to actually get a good pull and delay uh, and delay the arm coming through and they just Kind of kick their elbow in, and it becomes like a tricep-driven push. Um, we see that almost all the time with the with a two-kilogram ball. So we we like cut that for our guys. But for first off, have you noticed that that to be a tendency? Second off, how different do you feel that is? Because in javelin, you're throwing. I believe it's a one-pound. It's a one-pound implement, right? The, the javelin is one pound approximately.
1: It's almost two pounds.
0: It's almost two pounds. Okay, so it's it's a much heavier implement. How different do you feel like that? Has to be then from a training standpoint. Like four pound throwing a four pound ball seems to make more sense for a two pound sport than for a five ounce sport.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And and I still see exactly what you're saying, where the guys want to muscle up when they throw. I think that that's just a symptom that your your arm is not prepared to handle that level of stress. Um, but then it's like what you're saying. It's like for a javelin throw, you kind of need to handle that level of stress. For a baseball guy whipping your arm back with Whatever, however light a baseball is, a couple ounces, that's a different kind of stress than, than whipping a four pound ball back. So it's just a matter of like arm adaptation to demands that you place on it. So do I agree with it? what you're saying. I, I don't think a baseball player really needs it. Do you find that almost anybody, do
0: you find that your javelin guys can, can any of them throw a two kilogram ball properly the first time? Or is that something where like there's a full on progression to be able to build them up to that? Like I've seen a video of Johannes Vedder, Vedder doing it. And he he doesn't muscle up at all. It's like perfect, and I don't like. That's the only guy I've ever seen a video of throwing a ball that heavy without muscling up. Is it is it a progression where you know they're not going to be able to do it initially, and you have to build them up to that?
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. The like just about anybody who tries to throw a two K ball for the first time like it kicks their ass like every time. So the progression that I like to use is start off with as light of a ball as you need in order to hold form. Build up to say 100 throws per session. And then once you hit 100 throws per session, bump up the ball, go down to like 50 reps and just, you know, manipulate volume and intensity as needed until you progress up to like I know a guy's arm is ready when they can do 100 reps with a two kilogram ball in a workout in a session, like high ish intensity at that like 80% effort
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. range. And just for everybody else watching, or listening. Like you're not you're not saying that pitchers need, need to go do that. That that's very specific to the sport of javelin and the the loading that you're the specific type of loading that you're putting on your arm with a two pound with a two javelin and a full yeah full no it, exactly throw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah.
1: I, and I, I'm not sure what a baseball equivalent even would be, or if there needs to be a baseball equivalent to something yeah. like that.
0: We we do. I mean, a baseball is five ounces, so we we do a good amount of uh, seven ounce work, six ounce work. Uh, and then some four rounds work as, as kind of underload stuff. And then we'll have guys throw the one-pound ball as well as uh, some of their kind of patterning drills. Again, that's that's still three times the weight of a baseball. We typically don't see it, it being necessary to go much more than that. Once we, once we get to, like, the one-kilogram or the two-pound ball, it's like the specificity seems to die down. Like, the guys who throw that ball the best usually are not the guys who throw baseballs the best. They're just, like, the strongest guys who, like, have the highest you know bench press type numbers like they throw that ball really well, but they tend to not be the guys who have the actual highest like true pitching velocity but the guys who throw like the four ounce ball really well all of them throw gas with a five ounce so there there's a specificity kind of uh, the specificity gets lost if you get too too far from the implement of your actual sport
1: yeah and I think that there could even be like one of my favorite reasons I use the 2K ball is that you you have to throw it with your body. And, like, that requires you to totally relax your shoulder joint and, you know, get into a really deep layback position. Um, And over the course of, you know, a lot of repetition and progression up to that 100 rep workout with the two kilogram ball is your your layback is going to get a lot better. But then again, it's like what you're saying is that specific to a baseball throw? Probably not. But for a javelin throw, it's like learning to throw with your body like that. It's a totally different feel once you pick the javelin up in your hand and bring that same bring the same mechanics to the javelin throw.
0: let me ask you about um to go back to this this mobility question um, do you find that do you feel that more mobility is is always better if you can control it like if if you have the ability to uh control that range fire out of it are Kind of is your is your philosophy like the deeper the position the better or or do you find that like it is more individual specific some guys are a little bit more tightly wound fashionly driven other guys are a little bit kind of looser more degrees of freedom um, how do you view that continuum are you always searching for more range more range more range or or is there like a point at which it becomes counterproductive and you've you've opened up the joint too much increased the degrees of freedom too much.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that this is, this is a, a really interesting question because I, I go back and forth on this personally. I think that you need enough range of motion to fit your optimal technical model. That optimal technical model will, will be different for, you know, different people. But it's like, when you look at the best, well, let's just say javelin throws in the world, they all hit some really, really deep positions And you have to be honest with yourself if you are, one, able to hit those positions, but two, are you limiting your quote-unquote optimal technical model to fit your weaknesses as an athlete? Uh, It's very easy to say like, oh, like I'm a muscle-driven, knee-dominant thrower, so therefore I need to throw like this. But then, you know, if you look at the best throwers in the world, that's not how they're throwing so in if if your goal is to throw at the highest level possible you should be using those throwers as you know a north star to give you direction for the things that you should be working on and you know there are some common i mean it's across the board there are positions that every elite thrower is going to hit um and like i said you just have to be honest with yourself if you can actually hit those positions uh and and then i, I think a lot of people in terms of the question, like, is there such thing as too much mobility? I think the only reason that you could have too much mobility is if you don't adapt your technique to fit that new mobility. If you have more extreme range of motion, you're going to need to hit more extreme throwing positions. So, like, one one example that I love is I, I love Billy Wagner. Uh, mm. And he has a ridiculous amount of layback position. His layback position is, is greater than 90 degrees backwards. So in order to, in order to hit a layback position that is greater than 90 degrees, you have to dump your chest forward. Otherwise it's, it's physically impossible to hit your maximal range of motion. Right. But if you, if you, if you limit your technique to say, Oh, like I have to throw with my chest up and high throw with a tall chest and you don't dump your chest forward, then you have more mobility than your technical model requires.
0: That's, that's actually a really good example. Um, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. So we uh, I, so hypermobile athletes aren't actually that common. Like I can think of a handful that I've worked with over the past like seven years, but it's always it's always the guys that have two, like a crazy like 200 plus degrees of of uh, layback uh, that they're able to create. And the second you actually get them really downhill at landing, they can actually take out all the slack in their arm, and that's when the velo spikes. But the second they're back here at landing, they don't they aren't able to remove all the slack. So Billy Wagner, like he's, he's way out there with his trunk and his, his arm is, is parallel with the ground. But that's yeah, like, no, that, to me, that, that I always like saw that as like, that's for them, how they actually fully remove the slack out of the system, fully tension that, that fascial chain and get the slingshot effect. But that's going to be totally different for like a Justin Verlander who doesn't have that amount of range. He's releasing from like a much more upright trunk position. So is that, is that like the, a similar thing that you might see in Javelin where the the positions they hit are going to vary based on the range that they have and as a coach like the goal your specific goal for two different guys will be different like hey i want you to hit this position but you're a little bit different i want you to hit this position
1: yeah so the when i communicate like my whatever technical model to throwers i always make sure that i do it in a way that is relative to end ranges of motion like i it frustrates me when coaches say throw over the top or throw with a tall chest or stay closed because those cues are, if you have a lot of range of motion, those cues are going to limit your performance. And so for me, it's like I, I try to stay away from cues that are going to like limit what an athlete does with their body, because they're the ones who can feel the tension. They're the ones who can feel the slack in the system. So, uh, so yeah, so I, it's very I, – I use, like, a set of kind of, like, universal cues. But when I'm communicating it to the athlete, it's like I don't put limits on them. I don't put, like, rules on them for don't do this, don't do that. It's kind of like a self-exploratory process of, like, all right, like, how did that throw feel? What do you need to do from there? Um, because it's it's like, yeah, technique needs to be discussed relative to end range of the motion and, and slack in the system, like you said. Right.
0: So do do you pick um do you pick comps like like if you have a let's say collegiate javelin thrower that you're you're helping out will you try to find like a, an elite guy who matches kind of their body structure their build their their kind of a specific mechanical comp for him um, or do you just say like this is this is kind of the the general model that we're we're going to be going for based on you know my understanding of javelin uh, mechanics like do you, we you kind of pair them with a model and say like. Hey, you're the same body structure as this guy. Let's let's use him to to guide our positions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's really important. Just because, I mean, like for me, I think it would be crazy to assume what it's like to be in, say, a six foot five body, and say, oh, like you should be throwing like Jan Zalesny, without understanding that it's like when you're that tall, or maybe you're a lot shorter. It's like the feel of things are going to be way different. So, I think that you know the best you can do in a situation like that is find those, you know, comparative throwers and uh, just kind of guide them through the process of, you know, experimenting with different ideas and concepts and walking them through. You know, how does that feel like? Uh, you know what? What do you feel like you need to do from here? Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that it's really underrated to look at the best throwers in the world who are fit your body type and just try to copycat them, right? I think the brain works very well in that manner of quote unquote copycatting technique. Yeah.
0: With Im- imitation as a, as a form of motor learning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of quotes that I, I pulled from different post articles, um, that you've, you've written. Uh, I just wanted to kind of get your take to elaborate on them. Um, this one I found really interesting. Um, you basically wrote the body moves as a series of interconnected arcs, circles, rotations and figurates. There's a very specific uh, synergy that allows this to happen. And any interruption of the synergy means energy gets lost as waves of energy cancel each other out. So to me, that was like mind blowing when I first read that because you, you brought in this this wave analogy, where like the waves literally cancel each other out if you don't have this uh, proper sequencing, but can you elaborate on, on what exactly you mean? By that quote,
1: yeah. So, I, I think that the the first big like principle uh, that needs to be understood is like the body. The body drives movement, or it should drive movement in athletic uh, motions, proximally to distally. So that's going to be like the hips and the lats. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the spinal engine. I think you were actually the one that first told me about the spinal engine a few years ago. Um, the spine drives the movement. And then from there, the energy of that rotational uh, force gets transferred outwards to your limbs. So uh, that's going to happen through, you know, I I call it like opposing joint torque. So if you have, we'll just use throwing as an example, like if you have a relaxed arm and your torso rotates forward, your arm is going to have force pulling it backwards So your arm is going to go in an opposite direction of your torso. And the idea of canceling the waves out, it's like, imagine if you can't relax your arm or you muscle up and you pull your arm through at the same time as your torso. It's like you're going to lose that stretch reflex. You're going to lose that conservation of momentum through that whipping motion uh, through release. So that's kind of the idea of it is if you don't let energy travel how it wants to travel then you're going to disrupt that flow and you're going to lose out on a lot of velocity force or uh you know whatever your goal is in that movement
0: so one one analogy that i've always used when when kind of discussing this with guys is like imagine if you have a a bullwhip and you're you're envisioning like the the literal the wave traveling down the length of the whip but imagine if instead of like a flexible uh flexible whip like one section of that whip was just like steel, it didn't bend at all. That wave is going to is going to work its way down the whip, it's going to hit that one point where it's just like the steel rod. And it's just going to stop like all the energy transfer that you're trying to create that entire wave is just going to hit it and stop. And so that that equivalent in in a pitching motion in a javelin throw like that could be something as simple as like mistiming between pelvic rotation. And when the trunk comes in, that could be mistiming of when the glove arm starts to pull that could be mistiming of when the, the throwing arm starts to fire and not being able to relax properly like is that is that kind of how you look at it where like anywhere in this entire chain there could be these energy bleeds there could be this this muscling up phenomenon where you're you're losing out on that true whip like mechanism and like and how does that work into how you actually evaluate a thrower's mechanics like do, like first off answer that
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually funny. That's actually something I say to my athletes too, is I say, you, you can't make a whip out of wood. So you need to be elastic. You need to be mobile uh, in order to to have this, uh, you know, movement principle come to fruition. Um, but I mean, I I think that, you know, there's a thousand different places you can look for these restrictions. Um, but, but the big thing is the the most common areas that athletes are going to be locked up in are their hips and their spine. And those are the areas where that is where you'll see like the biggest uh issues start to show up. Where if you have like uh like a tight peck or something, it's like you can kind of overcome that better than having you know immobile hips or an immobile spine. So you can usually see that. Um a lot of athletes will be very pushy with their throwing mechanics off the back leg when they have tight hips. And that's very obvious because you see the, the kind of triple extension action uh, from the back foot into the block. And that to me is like a, first of all, that's just a big kink in uh, energy transfer in general, but that's a big sign that they are, you know, a muscle driven or tight athlete. So that would be like one red flag. Um, you, you can generally see when an athlete doesn't have a very mobile spine, like you can just see the there's just right, it's like the eyeball test. It's like you know when somebody's fluid or not fluid with their movement. You can see if you if you watch a video and take like a still frame of their layback position, you can see when their spine is just like a straight line and not getting enough extension. Um so those are kind of like the big places that I look. Um But then also just like conversation with the athlete, like, hey, like, like, where do you feel that throw? Um, You know, how does how does that throw feel? And a lot of the times these athletes, you know, throwing is painful or, you know, they have back pain or they their shoulder really hurts when they throw. And it's like, all right, like these are all red flags. These are all signs and symptoms that, you know, we need to develop these elements of your uh, of your movement.
0: What would your uh, response be to so there, there are some coaches in the, in the pitching realm who uh, literally preach triple extension where they preach kind of jumping maximum force into the ground, jumping off the back leg and, and basically getting full hip knee uh, and ankle extension um, and kind of claiming that that's a, a a high level solution to producing rotation up the chain, like what what would your response be? I mean, we're, we're in agreement on this, but how, how do you address that uh, that philosophy to, to an athlete who comes to you and they're like, hey, I've been taught to do this. Why should I, why should I learn to rotate when I've been taught to, to kind of extend my back leg?
1: I mean, the first thing I would ask is how is that working for you? <laughs> um, but, I mean, I, I think it's pretty obvious. Like if you just watch videos of the best throwers, it's like you don't see triple extension. You do not see that back knee extend. And then even if you break it down just on like an anatomical level, it's like when you extend the knee, it's like that's linked up with hip extension, and hip extension is linked to hip external rotation. And in order to actually create, in order to remove the slack from the throwing kinetic chain, your hip has to get into internal rotation. So you're literally sending your hip in the wrong direction, and and that just creates this massive, you know, wedge in the the flow of energy from the ground upwards, and. It creates a big disconnection from you know the lower and upper half. One thing in javelin is if, if a guy does that, uh, there's this funny thing that happens where the, it creates this disconnect between their pelvis and their torso, where when they push off the back leg, their pelvis dumps forward. And as their pelvis dumps forward, they have to compensate with m- massive T-spine extension. And as they compensate in that way, the tip of the javelin just shoots up. And they totally lose the tip and they lose a ton of distance uh, because of the lack of, you know, aerodynamic alignment. And they might say, Oh, but this feels more powerful, but it's like, well look at the throwing distance. Look at how the javelin is flying. Look at um, just look at the numbers. And so it's like, it's a really common uh, issue in javelin. Uh, I'm not really, I can't really speak to pitching, but
0: yeah, super uh, common. Well,
1: yeah, super common. Uh, but yeah, it's like, I think that no matter what level you approach it on, whether it's you know looking at the best throwers, looking at it from an anatomical perspective, you're going to find that it just doesn't make sense.
0: Do, do you find that some, uh, do you find that there seems to be a link in Javelin between the guys who do that and the guys who do develop kind of hip labral pathologies, hip impingement? Like, is that something that you did prior to the issues you started having with your hips?
1: Um, I, I actually don't know. That's a a very good question, actually. But what I could say is I think that it's linked to elbow pain because it forces – it when you go from back foot contact to block in the javelin, if you push off that back leg, you're going to have what appears to be like a long block, but your back leg has to come through a little bit to get in position. And I don't know if you've seen Dr. Heenan talk about trail leg hip flexion. Um in in pitching mechanics, if you do that in javelin, the the arm issues become even worse because it's a two pound implement and you just lose all this extra energy from the ground that um that you could be using to throw, but you have to compensate a lot more with the throwing arm. Um, So basically what happens is you push off the back leg very often leads to that trail leg hip flexion and then your your arm just feels terrible.
0: Yeah, it's the exact same thing in, in pitching. The second you see the extension, then you see the, the trailer hip flexion because everything has to rotate together as one and then you get this linear finish versus actually being able to rotate around the block. So it's, it's the exact same thing. But then again, the, that stress has to go somewhere, right? If you don't convert all that linear momentum into rotation because you just extended, then you're going to have to make up for it somewhere else in, in the, later on in the chain. And again, the arm is going to be the thing that makes up for it. I just asked because like, I ran into hip labral stuff in my back hip, um, and I, I had some kind of extendy issues with my backside. Um, Tim Lincecum is like a classic example. that uh, he, did, he did find a way to still kind of rotate decently well, but he got really extended. He ran into a, lot, a ton of hip labral stuff. Um, so there are, there are case studies of guys who have a ton of uh, kind of triple extension running into um, kind of this hip labrum type issue. Possibly because, again, like you said, their, their hip is literally going in the wrong direction from the direction they're trying to rotate. So,
1: yeah, that, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm going to look into that more.
0: Um, let me let me read another one of these uh, these quotes from you. Um, you said, "If a braced core was the way to go, I think athletes would be going and getting spinal fusions for performance enhancement." I think you said that in a podcast, but. Um, Elaborate on that because obviously there's there's kind of the debate like do you want a mobile spine or do you want to be training pure core and spinal stability? Um, what place do you see for both of those or or what did you mean by that quote exactly?
1: Yeah, so I, I mean I I think this just goes back again to if you observe high level athletes, you can very clearly see that they do not keep a braced core. Like that is a very weight room driven mentality, um, and you know, I think when you really get into, you know, like the spinal engine theory of movement and all of that, you, you start to see that it's like your, your pelvis and your lats and it, like through that, you know, dense fascia through that low back sacrum area, it's like, that's where a lot of, a lot of athletic movement stems from. And so when you try to keep a braced cord, you lose out on that and you, you end up moving like a lego man you end up moving like a gingerbread man and it's like there's there's so much elastic force to be transferred from that area there's so much like like those are the strongest muscles in your body it's the densest elastic tissue in the body and it's like we know movement needs to happen proximally to distally to maximize force so it's like if you intentionally limit movement there then you're missing out on all of that. You're not using your strongest muscles. You're losing a lot of stretch reflex. Um, And then you're just losing out on, on, you know, loose, relaxed athleticism. So, I I mean, I think it's, I think it's enough to just observe the best athletes and see that, you know, that's not how they move to debunk the braced core idea. Um, But I think just thinking about it logically too, it's like, it just doesn't make sense.
0: So uh, to kind of go along with that, um, I think we I think we agree that like in the actual throw itself, there's not this uh, fully braced core phenomenon like a powerlifter might have, right? You're not trying to just uh, brace the, the spinal column and then load it up with 700 pounds, right? There needs to be that mobile action in the actual throw itself. Um, do you see any place for isometrics? planks, pallet presses, any of that in a training setting, knowing that again, they're not actually going to be using that exact pattern in throwing. Um, is there, is there a benefit there just to, um, learning to kind of organize the pelvis, organize the rib cage, uh, or, or is a lot of what you do more, uh, kind of mo- moving, flowing type core movements?
1: Yeah. I mean, like personally, I, I don't ever really do like, tail-off presses or or anything like that, but I see the value in using them as isometrics and just learning how to feel, right? Because when you do an isometric, it gives you the chance to t- to tap in and tune into the lines of tension that are that are being forced through your body. Uh, so in terms of body awareness, like I I think that that could be a great idea, but you have to like define why you're doing it, and if you're if you're telling the athlete to brace their core and that this is how you need to run or throw or whatever. It's like that's where the problem is. But I mean I I don't think that doing braced core exercises in the weight room are going to be detrimental to your athleticism like it, Grant Fowler talks about that a lot like it, it's like the doing two things in the weight room that are the opposite of what you do on the field like that's not going to be enough of a stimulus to um you know, ruin your athleticism. So I mean I think there's value to doing, you know, all of it. Do do brace core work, do uh non braced core work. Um and just yeah, leave no stone unturned.
0: How much medicine ball work do you do you guys do or or that type of thing uh for javelin?
1: Uh that de- definitely a, a good amount. Um it, it kind of just depends on the athlete and where they're at. For somebody who's at like a higher level, I like to do more of it for somebody who's at a lower level. Uh, it'll be more like technically focused work. Uh, I just think there's a lot of value to building the technical foundation before, uh, you know, layering on some of the, the power and elastic stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a lot of value in it in terms of uh just finding that middle ground between the weight room and throwing it's like you can, uh, it, it balances out like the elastic side of things, but also at like a higher force, uh, which is awesome for developing that javelin throwing core, uh, strength.
0: One one thing you've talked about before is, uh, the difference between throwing specific power and weight room power. So I, I really like this distinction. Um, you said here, uh, where weight room power is driven by neuromuscular output, throwing power is driven by transfer of ground reaction forces, creating stretch reflex through joint torque, ultimately dictated by the leverage of our skeletal positioning. So that's it's kind of a mouthful, but like, could you could you simplify that for people listening? Like, what's the difference between me going and doing like a hang, a hang clean versus going and doing a throw? Like, how, how is the power? How is that not the same type of power?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is probably like the most important idea I think that I I, like talk about uh, on my page. It's like when you talk about power in general, it's like people get hung up on that word power. And so just because it's like you see Jan Zalesny throw and you say, oh, my gosh, like he's so explosive through release. He's so powerful with his throw. You immediately jump to the conclusion that it's like, oh, powerful throw must mean powerful muscles and powerful muscles must mean strong squat, strong hang clean, strong whatever. But it's like we have to define the exact task at hand and like at, at the most fundamental level, what's the difference between a hang clean and a javelin throw? Well, one of them is a hang clean and one of them is a javelin throw. Right. And so it's like, what is the exact movement happening? And like, what are the joints involved? What are the muscles involved? Um, but then, even from that perspective, we have to, uh, you know, say like, in the weight room. Let's say we're talking about just like chest power or something more specific to throwing. Doing like an explosive bench press, that is driven by neuromuscular force development. But when you look at what the arm is doing in a javelin throw. It's very passive, it's very relaxed, it's very loose and whippy. So how does it move if it's a passive movement? The energy transfers from the ground through your body into your arm and that energy comes from the momentum of your approach being transferred through your throwing position at block foot contact. And when we look at it like that, we're not really throwing with our muscle we're throwing with our bones. We're throwing with our, our skeletal architecture, transferring energy up through our elastic tissue into our throwing arm. So I think like the, the quote that you just read, it's like, skeletal positioning is going to drive stretch reflex through the elastic tissue. And that's going to be driven by, um, you know, the collision with your block, which is from momentum and uh, you know, gravity pulling you into the block.
0: Would it be fair to say that uh, it's kind of the difference between uh, a total body uh, transfer power versus an isolated uh, power movement? Isolated power movement, let's say the, ch- the chest pass example, you have to produce all of that literally from, you have to overcome all the inertia and produce all that power from a complete standstill, all from your chest versus when you have the entire run-up and you have all this momentum from your lower half all you're having to do is really get into positions to allow it to transfer through the system. So it's, it's the integrated approach versus the isolated uh, power training approach.
1: Yeah, so here, let me, let me put it this way. When you are, let's say you're a 200-pound pitcher, right? And let's say you're standing on a weight scale and you weigh 200 pounds on the weight scale. As you're standing there, you relax your knees and you stomp on the ground a little bit, and the number on the scale shoots up. It's like, do you suddenly weigh more by relaxing and stomping your feet? It's like, no, gravity is accelerating you downwards, and then the ground reaction force, the number on the scale, increases because uh, gravity just pulled you down harder. So if you take that concept and apply it to, say, your, your pitching mechanics, gravity, like we talk about, like you talk about the drift and, um, you know, creating like a source of momentum into your block. It's like that is gravity acting on your skeletal leverage to accelerate you into your block. It's like there's no muscle in your body that pulls you downwards. There's only relaxation to let gravity pull you downwards. So it's like from that perspective, that is the quote-unquote muscle of the throw. Gravity, the force of gravity, is your throwing muscle. And it's your job to set up your body to be in a position to properly capture and funnel that energy from the equal and opposite ground reaction forces up into your throwing arm. And that's like a mouthful, but I think that that is like the perspective, that's the framework that you need to have to understand that difference between, you know, weight room power versus throwing power.
0: Would, it, would you view that? So I understand that there's obviously a lot of energy being, being transferred up through the entire body. Um, would you still view that there is an active contribution from muscular contraction as like an amplifier of that? So like the energy is traveling up through my body, up through my body. And there's a certain amount that's, that's already here. But then i'm I'm amplifying that that wave with my own. The, the, I've always felt like there's an active addition to that that energy where the the is an amplifier. But if it comes on too soon, then it just canceled out the wave from the, the lower half and just muscled up. So how do you how do you kind of uh, handle that objection where there's still do you still you find that there still is the active, the active contribution? It just needs to be perfectly timed and so that you actually allow the other energy to get there first. Yeah. So th- this like is something that I throw or whatever. Yeah,
1: no, no, I know exactly what you're saying. And and this is something I personally go back and forth on a lot. I think that it's because if it was an active component and this is just me speaking from my experience, throwing, you would have to time that muscular contraction to the millisecond. And to me, when I throw, I feel that same thing that you're talking about. It feels like an active component, but I don't feel like I'm actively doing anything with my chest. So that to me, I think that there's like, I think there's a lot that we're going to learn about, uh, like the neuromuscular fascial system within the next, however many years. I think that that is an area that will be really interesting to study. And what impact that plays on muscular contraction and movement um, and just how it's all linked together. Because I, I do think that there's an active muscular component, but I don't think it's active in the sense that we're the ones who are thinking about right. it. It might be
0: more of a reflexive a reflexive contraction than, than a consciously timed pec contraction. More, more of a reflexive type thing.
1: Yeah. And I think that maybe... It, Maybe it's not even reflexive to anything in the body, but maybe it's reflexive to, you know, a a task oriented goal of when we flip on that switch and say, all right, I'm going to throw this as hard as I possibly can. Like, maybe it's reflexive to that versus, you know, a a passive energy transfer kind of thing, if that makes
0: sense. Gotcha. Um so I, I read somewhere um, i can't remember which book it was in but uh, apparently they took thomas roller who's who's one of the uh top javelin throwers in the world and he, he's an undersized guy so he's probably like 6 185 something like that like he's pretty pretty wiry guy um and they they examined uh with a i think dynamic ultrasound they looked at his pec fascia on his non-throwing arm and his throwing arm and they found that the pec fascia was significantly denser like I don't remember like three times as dense on his throwing arm than on his non-throwing arm. Um, could you speak to, I guess the, the purpose of that, like why that adaptation would be taking place and how do you, how do you view fascia in terms of, of your training approach? Because obviously there's something to developing the fascia from a performance standpoint. So I guess, do do you think that's, that'd be unique to him? Or do you feel like that's like all throwers probably do have that if you, if you looked at their, their fascial system and then how do you how do you approach training fascia
1: yeah so uh i i know exactly what you're talking about i've seen that too and um and i i think that that's something you'd probably see across the board with elite throwers uh i think that fascia in a lot of ways acts as a little bit of like a shock absorber um like when we talk about elastic power i think that that is fascia more than it is individual tendons and um, like soft tissue. Uh, and so I think it's something you see across the board with all throwers, um, uh, when it comes to training the fascia, um, I, I forget exactly where I read this too, but it's like, it's going to be repetitive sub maximal efforts that cause fascia adaptation rather than, uh, you know, isolated, uh, high load movements. Uh, so that's where i really love the submaximal throwing building up a high volume of high, uh submaximal throwing uh, i think fascia for javelin throwers is also very very important in terms of uh having an athletic run up so i'm very big on training the feet uh and the feet are kind of the start of every fascial link in the body right it all spirals down to the feet no matter whether you're talking about uh you know a rotational movement or um or just like a posterior chain movement. It, it all starts at the feet. Um, so I follow uh, Chang Ji. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's the one that got me onto this. Uh, basically his method for training the fascia system through the feet is just tons and tons of sub maximal, uh, high repetition uh, hopping. So like five minutes of hopping side to side uh you could do jump roping or barefoot jogging but just a super high volume of let of
0: me low let density. me ask you let me ask you a question based on that because so this is one of the questions i had uh, planned for you um i think it's it's been known for a long time that like if you want to dunk a basketball you want to improve your vertical uh vertical jump you want to sprint faster like the feet are important plantar fascia is important the calves are important like go do five ten minutes of jump up a day like that's that's like a a well-known kind of thing, like to train the, the fascia in the feet. Um, do you feel like there, there is an equivalent thing you could do for the upper body? Like I've, I've toyed around with this idea of like, uh, pec bounces, like lower, like bottom half of a push up. Like you're just doing like sets of a minute where you're just bouncing off the ground, purely just using the, the, pec fascia. Um, do you have any sort of equivalent besides just, besides just looking at the feet, which I agree are important. Is there something like that for the, the oblique slings or something like that for the, the chest? Like, have you thought about that at all?
1: Yeah, so that's funny. I, I've done that too with the push-up stuff. I experimented with that for a while. I, I don't think that that was really very effective. I think the best things that I've found for a super like strong elastic shoulder girdle is high-repetition medicine ball dribbles. So in an overhead position uh, with one arm with so like a six- to eight-pound ball, just doing fairly hard, but you're dribbling the medicine ball overhead against the wall, um, and doing you know sets of twenty five to fifty, um, and just accumulating. Do you stay in plane volume. with that, or
0: are you are you going like all positions on the clock? or Are you trying to stay in plane with with your shoulder position right here? Uh,
1: I do it. It's it's somewhere between overhead and in plane. Um, so you might I, you might be
0: a little bit up, a little bit above right there.
1: Yeah, I I try to emphasize, uh, like you're pulling the arm with the body, right? You're not like m- muscling the yeah. dribble, um, so you're 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 letting you're, the body pull away from the arm, and you're you're kind of catching yeah. a rhythm of uh, rotating gotcha. away from the ball, catching it, letting it pull you, and repeat. Um, I have a video of it on my page. It, cool. it would probably help to visualize. Um,
0: do, do so you? know that's a question on that because like I've. Well, at one point I had a a bicep tendon thing like four or five years ago. And part of my rehab for that was, uh, doing a bunch of dribbles. Um, I wasn't doing exactly like you were talking about. I was doing a more like just kind of straight up right, right around 90 degrees and like really training like this bounce right here. But what I found when I started throwing again is I wasn't allowing my arm to actually like whip through. I started throwing like this where I was just coming through like that. Um, do you have any like when you do them do you actually like allow your arm to like spiral and whip as you do it or is is it more of like a catapulting action and have you seen like it positively or negatively affects actual throwing mechanics once you get back into throwing
1: yeah so that that's uh kind of what i was trying to describe is like i try to make sure that it's the full body pulling away from the arm so it does load the scap it does create that spiraling motion um And yeah, just trying to create as big of a stretch through the chest as possible. And it's totally relaxed. So like when you, when you do it at that 90 degree angle, it's, it's awkward to try to control that. And it becomes this weird, like internal rotation movement. And it's just not resembling throwing at all. Um, so I, I don't like dribbles like that. I don't like any exercises like that where you're trying to isolate shoulder ER, um, but yeah, so, so that's kind of the idea is just accumulating a ton of reps in that uh, overhead dribbling position.
0: Do you find that that um, has to be kind of uh, balanced with the other throwing you're doing? Like, do you count that towards your throwing volume for the day? Or is that just like a warm-up that you, you just kind of do regardless of the rest of your workload? Or do you, do you know if you're do- going to be doing 100 reps of that, that day, you have to do a little bit less of the actual other throws for the day?
1: Yeah, no. So I treat that more as like a warm up. Um okay. it, it's almost kind of like what you said like what's the upper body equivalent of like the the foot stuff. It's like the same way that I would use like a a barefoot jog as a warm up before a running workout. I would use that as like a, a fascia warm up.
0: Gotcha. You don't find it super it's not workout. super fatiguing for any of the guys you you use it with or anything.
1: No, and if it is super fatiguing, then just back off a little bit, do a little bit less or use a lighter ball. Um but yeah, and and then to go off that too is I think that throwing, the submaximal throwing, I think that in itself is probably a, a really good fascia workout. Um as long as you do a good job of of cueing that relaxed arm, keeping the arm relaxed and uh pulling with the body.
0: What where do you feel like the value so we've talked about um, doing some overweight type throwing to build stress tolerance. Right? We've talked about doing for a two-pound javelin, do do some four-pound throws, do some six to eight-pound medicine ball dribbles. Um, do you feel like there's any value to underload training? Like do you do any one pound, any, uh, I don't know, seven ounce, nine ounce, like anything lighter than a javelin to work on maybe the arm speed uh, component of that? How do you view overload versus underload kind of continuum with with, uh, with your throwers?
1: Uh, I I don't really personally use underload for anything other than during like a ramp up phase of throwing um, where, you know, like even in the Javelin's 800 grams is almost two pounds. So if you take some time off from throwing, like that's a, it's tough to just jump right back into that at a high intensity. So I like to start with a underweight ball just to build back uh, the repetition and uh, get back into it. But in terms of, you know, like over speed throwing and stuff like that. I, I'm not really a fan of that um, for no other reason than I, I, it just doesn't really fit into uh, the training system that I use, but I know a lot of coaches do use that. Uh, Stephen Jones is, is a really good resource for stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, I don't really use underweight throwing.
0: Um, I only got a couple more questions for you. Um I know we could probably go on for hours, but I want to be respectful of people's time and your time. Um, When when you initially work with somebody and you're kind of evaluating uh, what type of training they need, um, do you look on like the elastic versus muscle driven continuum? Like, do you say this guy is like, do you have any way of evaluating that first off? Like, do you look at their different types of jumps, like vertical jump, uh, step into jump, pause jump? Like, do, do you have a way to evaluate? Whether they're muscle driven or more reactive, elastic driven. Um, if so, then how much? How do you like gear their training differently? Or everyone, regardless, probably needs to be more on the elastic side. Like, do, do you do you view it that way, or do you tailor what they need based on uh, some sort of test like that?
1: Yeah. So I, the the big evaluation that I do is like. I watch their, their throws. They send me throwing videos and then I have them work through a few different mobility exercises. Um, But generally from watching their throw, you get a really good sense of what they need in their training. You can tell when somebody is not athletic and elastic. You can tell when somebody uh, needs to add a little bit more strength into their throw. And generally kind of going back to like, early on uh, when you'd ask about strength training, it's like, I think most people like whether they need it or not need it, quote unquote, need it. um, They'll still do it and develop their strength in these different ways. And, uh, you know, I've had really strong guys who didn't need strength, but still benefited from, you know, doing some of the strength through length stuff and long range of motion strength training. So the strength training side is kind of like universal across the board. It's like, that's going to hit on everything you're going to need as a thrower anyway, like no stone unturned, like I keep saying. Uh, But in terms of like movement and mobility and elasticity, that you're going to see uh, pretty easy just from watching their approach. Um, And then a a big side of this that's kind of irrelevant to baseball guys in general uh, is like the approach technique, your run-up technique. And that is a huge part of what I do, too, is um, there's a lot of movement principles uh, that I like to work on with throwers through their approach. Um, So you you can see all of that for the most part just from watching a video of them throwing.
0: Gotcha. Do do you have like specific, um, I guess, weight room goals for them based on like, let's say they're working on strength through length? Um, I, I know you mentioned the Athletic Truth Group. They have like their strength, their standards. Um, for each given movement, like their ATG lunge they have, you know, you should be able to do X amount of body weight for X amount of reps. Um, do you have anything where it's like, Hey, if, if you can hit these five things, like chances are, we're going to be able to get in some really good positions and, and throw pretty far um, anything like that off the top of your, off the top of your head that like are rules of thumb uh, or is it just continue like whatever you have from the start, let's just keep improving it indefinitely. Yeah. So with the
1: the strength stuff, it's definitely more like, there's no standard. It's just, let's keep getting better. Um, uh, but in terms of like the, the positioning stuff in mobility ability, I have six, I call them benchmark positions and those are going to be representative of the throwing positions you need to hit. So that's going to be the back bridge, the side split, the front split, uh, the skin, the cat, a toe touch. And then I call it the thrower stretch, which is where you have one leg out and you reach back and touch uh, yeah. the opposite hand. It kind of resembles like a, a block throwing position. Um, so based on, you know, how well you're able to perform those movements, that's going to be a big focus, uh, on like where you emphasize training moving forward. So if you're, uh, struggling with a back bridge, for instance, then, um, it's like, that's where we're going to put some more of the emphasis in the training that you do. It's going to be more spinal extension stuff and, uh, just kind of opening up that anterior chain. So I'll say, Hey, like, you know, for this workout, why don't you put a little extra emphasis on the couch stretch. Why don't you put a little more emphasis on spend a little more time doing the back bridge push-ups? Um and kind of work that way.
0: Gotcha. All right. I have to ask you about this this cue because uh it's something we've we started using with with some of our guys as well. Um and the cue is relaxing the tongue. <laughs> yeah. No I know that was one that uh, apparently Jan Zelazny was uh uh kind of a, a big user of that cue uh, or maybe that came from the dns uh, kind of training background that, that he was on but um we've used variations of that relax the tongue relax the face um talk about that as a way to encourage guy or, or i guess cue, cue relaxation like when you see when you see them muscling up somewhere and, and if so like why does that work why would that work
1: yeah so uh it, it comes from uh d n s system that's where the idea comes from and that's where jan and got it from um honestly i'm I do not fully understand the neurology of it all I know is that relaxing the face is probably one of the best cues you can possibly have as a thrower if you're somebody that muscles up uh the the jaw like that's where you hold a lot of tension in your body like even if you're just like a desk worker and you're like stressed out during the day at work you're gonna notice like that's where you hold onto the tension. It's like you hunch your shoulders and your jaws all clenched yeah. tight and you know, you get those stress headaches. It's like the same principle applies to your throwing. If you're, you know, trying to, to rip it, you know, 500 miles an hour and you're, you're clenching your jaws to do it. It's like already I can tell you that's you're, you're not going to throw as hard as you think you are. And this is something that, uh, we had just started talking about, uh, with one of our throwers who, I don't know if if he wants me to say his name, but he actually used to work with you, Scott. Um, we we recently started using that cue with him and the way that he started using it is as he's running down the runway, he says, he likes to let his cheeks jiggle. He likes to feel his cheeks jiggle.
0: Yeah. Um, and you can see that in most, most Olympic sprinters. If you watch their slow mo, you can, you can see how relaxed their face is.
1: Yeah, and, and it has immediate transfer to relaxation throughout your the rest of your body. What
0: I've always found, like when I first heard that cue, and you just like try it, it's impossible. To, it's at least I feel like it's almost impossible to hold tension anywhere else if you relax. If you do that, it's like it's like with the last place you hold tension. And so if you can relax that, everything else just falls into place. Versus like if you just relax your hands, like you're still actually holding tension in your traps, jaw, tongue. But if you relax that, it's like everything else seems to just kind of melt away so i, I don't know how, how they figure that out but it's it's yeah. a pretty unique cue that we've had results with too
1: yeah no I, I love it i think that that's um like there's definitely neurology behind it i know douglas Heal and his like deactivated system and uh the rpr reflexive performance reset like that's you know they call it like the zone three muscles so any anywhere that you're holding tension outside of like your torso that's gonna be a limiting factor. And, like, just even outside of, like, that being a cue, I think it's really important to just have, you know, awareness of where you're holding tension in your body anyway. Um, you know, just do, like, a body scan, like, before you throw. Like, you mm. know, how, does, how does my head feel? Relax my head. Relax my shoulders. Relax my hands. Relax my toes. Um, like, I think there's a lot of value in that, just being aware.
0: All right. I got one more question. And then I will uh, open it up to you if you have anything else you want to say, because I I know we've dragged this on a little bit. Um, When it comes to mobility, obviously, there's a there's a purpose to loading deep positions, loading, loading them in the weight room strength through length. There's a place for kind of isolated mobility work where it's maybe like backbridge training, where it's, you know, it's not necessarily loading it, but it's just opening up that range with maybe FRC type movements or uh, things like that. Um, What's your view on soft tissue work? Like, do, do you find that um, you need to address soft tissue to get results um, from the mobility side, or do you find that just sending the signal of getting into the getting into certain positions actively and then loading those positions is enough uh, to to work on the range of motion where you don't even need to spend as much time on the soft tissue side or, or is that like a a big piece for you guys
1: um so so generally speaking it's it's not a big piece of what I'll have guys do, but that being said, I, I'm a really big believer in soft tissue work around the throwing arm uh, and, you know, just like your upper back muscles. Uh, I actually, I went after my first meet after college, I threw in a meet purely for fun. Uh, and by the end of the meet, I thought I tore my rotator cuff. My arm hurt so bad. And that was part of the reason that I ended up deciding to to focus on coaching. And I I couldn't do anything to fix it. I I really thought that it was like a torn rotator cuff. I went to an Eric Cressy seminar where one of the speakers was talking about soft tissue release, um, for like throwing shoulder. And I tried some of the techniques and within a week, my shoulder was back to hundred percent just from releasing. I call it the armpit muscles, like your pec minor, your, your teres muscle group, and then the long head of your tricep. And If you have like unexplainable shoulder pain, that would be a very good place to start. Um, I know you guys do like some lacrosse ball release stuff, right? And
0: yeah, we uh, we do a fair amount of it. Again, just depending on what we think they they need from their screen. So like, it's very easy to get carried away, and, and before you know it, you're spending an hour and a half on your warm up. Like, we're trying to be as efficient as possible. So like, what are the two, three, four things that we can really focus on? That's specific to that guy if they have a huge like shoulder limit and in internal rotation, like we'll throw some lacrosse ball work on the on their posterior cuff on that Terry's group. But again, trying, trying to maximize the efficiency of their time, because we've just seen like it can just turn into this huge spiral where they're doing like two hours of mobility work a day. And then they don't even have like the motivation energy by the time they start their throwing for the day. So yeah. I mean, I, I definitely time, find,
1: yeah, I, I definitely find that if, if you're able to, you know, do a single arm hang for 30 seconds and can get into a good back bridge and can move your spine in all these different directions, like you're generally not going to have issues with soft tissue quality, um, but I think there's definitely value to having it as a tool in your toolbox.
0: Awesome. Well, is there anything else you you really wanted to touch on? Any other topics we we didn't hit? I tried to uh, get to as many of my kind of selfish uh, questions as I could. I was, I was very just curious to, to pick your brain, but um, what do you want to talk about? If anything, uh, just to finish this up.
1: I mean, honestly, man, I think we covered it all. I think this was a pretty great interview. I haven't done like a throwing specific podcast yet. So this was a lot of fun.
0: Awesome, man. Well, hopefully the people enjoy it. Um, if you guys have any questions for Kevin, you can go ahead and leave those down below. Um, I'm sure we'll do this at some point in the future. So uh, we'll try to hit some of those questions as well. Where can they, where can they find you uh, if they, if they want to reach out, want to learn more about what you do
1: yeah so I have a Instagram page called javelin.anatomy. and that is where I do just about everything if you have any specific questions you can email me uh, at javelin.anatomy at gmail.com um, I have a, a few different resources to have a mobility program for throwers and that I have uh, a javelin technique program called technical foundations where I, I break down some misconceptions and some some foundational elements of javelin throwing techniques, so um, check those out and and shoot me any questions that you have i'm I'm always happy to to talk back and forth in the DM so um, yeah but I appreciate you guys listening in on this
0: yeah for sure and, and I have done that mobility uh, program and i can uh, I can speak to its effectiveness myself, so definitely check that out if, if you guys are curious. but uh, Kevin, thanks again for being on. Um, hopefully people enjoy this, and I will do this again sometime soon.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you having me, man. Thank you.
0: Thanks a lot, Kevin.